Philippians 2, it starts off with this clause, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. And uh, I'm not going into teaching mode just quite yet, but that word there, fellowship, is koinonia. And it's the koinonia and the fellowship that we have with God through the Holy Spirit that then translates into koinonia at this level, which means there ought to be no disunity here, none, because there's no disunity up there, and we're part of that, we're one of that. And I think one of the most powerful descriptions in the book of Acts of the koinonia that was going on at this level is that, I think in Acts 4 it says, and there was not a need, not one need among them. What powerful testimony that must have been to the church or to the world as to what the body of Christ was. We got this thing called real-time church that I'm going to ask Josh, if he's here, uh, to come on up. And I don't know if it's, uh, is Josh in the house? Is it just you this morning, Josh? Oh, Lindsay. Awesome, Lindsay. Okay. Um, Just listen to what our church is going for um, in terms of what I just laid out. Hey, what's up? My name is uh, Josh. I'm lucky enough to be uh, serving with Real Time Crossroads. It's just really a group of people that uh, we've just started to come together to do exactly what Rod just said, and that is to like lift each other up and to uh, not have a need amongst us. And that's really what, that's really what our goal is. So really kind of what that looks like right now is we've got, we've got five, six people have been coming together trying to make connections throughout our body. And that's something that I noticed from the first time I got here is there's just this groundswell of people saying, what am I going to do right now about who God is and how am I going to serve on my street corner? And so we just want to continue to build a culture at Crossroads that is lifting each other up as, as you share on your street corner. If there's any way I can help you, I need to do that. If there's something I need and you can help me in that, if we can like just cross-pollinate throughout this church, it's just going to make this beautiful picture of all these connections happening. And that's what the church is supposed to be. It's what the church in Acts was, and it's what we strive to be. So we've got, we've got kind of a website, Facebook page, Twitter, email, texts. Basically, any way we can try to get a hold of each other, short of Pony Express, which we would try, uh, maybe Wheelchair Express, I don't know. I'll drive around and deliver things. But if there's any way we can get in each other's lives, it's what we want to do. And so just in the past couple weeks, there have been a couple things that have come up. Just as an example to kind of paint a picture of what I'm talking about here, um, we sent out um, basically a, a Facebook update. Um, little message every week. We've got like 200 pe- people on Facebook. We've got a handful of people on Twitter. I mean, honestly, Facebook is blowing up, and we're like, we're not, we haven't even scratched the surface. We have like 15 email addresses or something like that. So that's why we're coming to you guys today. But anyway, on Facebook, we sent out this update, and um, it said, "Hey, as a church, we want to be vulnerable with each other. We want to share with each other, and we want to be able to um, to be humble enough." to state it when we have a need and to not just to not keep it to ourselves, but to put it out there. Well, so the next day um, we got back a message from a single mom who's had an incredibly rough time of it the past few years. And she basically said this. She said, you know what? I work every day till 630, um, you know, school year and summer. I've got a couple kids. My oldest kid has to watch two younger kids. And um, you know what? She doesn't really get um, you know much of a much of a summer because she's spending a lot of her summer um, watching my my younger two kids. Same thing in the school year. So, is there any way that somebody could just help you know maybe be a parent to my kid every once in a while, or to come in and cook a meal? You know. And so we take this like to our little team where we're like going to make connections, and we're like, how can we bless this single mom? You know, what can we do? And so we just start dreaming things up. So, you know, we're going to send that, um, that oldest daughter on a trip. We're going to provide childcare that week for, uh, for the family so they don't miss a beat. We're gonna, we found um, a bike that we're going give, to uh, give to that family. We are going to bring in some meals. 
And um, that's really just the beginning of it. We want to develop like a relationship, you know, with that, with that single mom. You know, so that is what we want to be about as a church. And we don't really want to turn people down either. You know, so we want to just continue to make those connections. The more needs we hear about, the more other people can be blessed by meeting those needs. So it's like this crazy thing. Somebody gets a need met, they get a blessing. The people who are doing the meeting of the needs get a blessing. And this crazy, wacky little group of people sitting out on my patio are getting all excited, getting a blessing out of making these connections. So that's really what we're about. So um, Lindsay's going to tell you really more about how the rubber meets the road on that for this morning. Yeah, um, including what the story that Josh was just telling you, we have a couple of opportunities for you all to get involved and help meet some of the needs that are in our body right here. And one of those is with this family that he was just talking about. You know, he said, we're sending their oldest child on a trip and we're going to provide childcare. And we're kind of hoping some of you can help with that. So um, you, we have sign-ups out there. Um, it's the week of July 23 through the 31st that we're needing some people to um, kind of take care of a couple of kids, you know, Maybe you have kids and they, you're just going to take them to the zoo or something one day a week. Maybe you could bring those kids along and um, just kind of love on these kids um, for a day. So we need just, you know, during regular work hours from like 8 till 6.30 or whatever, um, if you can't do all day, that's fine. But um, just looking for some people that, you know, maybe you, maybe you love kids. Maybe you have a family you're already hanging out and you can add a couple more and that's fine. So um, go on out to the Connection Centers and sign up if you are able to. And then another one that we have is another family that's in Crossroads here. The Lamancy family are redoing their roof, and they need some people um, to help with that as well. And that's the weekend of July 23 um, through 25. They're gonna, he's took, taken some time off work to get this done and just kind of knock it out, and um, it would be a great help to them if they're able to have some additional hands, obviously, more than one person helping on a roof, you know, to, to get this moving. So if you have a special skill in roofing especially, that would be fabulous if you're able to sacrifice, you know, half a day to help with these, help with this family. And um, I do recognize that this is the same time that the Habitat House is going on, but I honestly see no reason why we can't completely do both of them. So, um, so those are two things. Go to the Connection Centers, take a look at your calendars, and see if you can sign up. I know they're really quick, like next weekend. So, um, if you just need to take a note and send us an email at help at realtimecrossroads.org, you know, maybe you need to check your calendar first. Just let us know so we can make sure that these needs are filled. And then lastly, we have these cards that you should have gotten on your way in. If you didn't, um, to take one on your way out or they're also at the Connection Centers. This is a way for us to be more connected with you all and let you know what's going on. So you can take a look here, put your name, your email, and then a specific area that you're able to help with. Um, like family support, like, you know, with this story that Josh just told, um, lawn help, maybe you can rake someone's leaves for a couple hours and that's, and that's good. Car maintenance, household maintenance, general needs, you know, item needs, you know, maybe you have an extra bike or you're able to help give someone a ride to church or whatever. And then there's another spot for others. So if you have another special skill or something you're specifically able to help with, that's a great place to put that. And then also if you want to receive text messages from us on these certain needs, you can put your cell phone number there and we'll kind of send the t- those text announcements out too. So what we'll do with this is when we get a need in one of these categories, if, you're, if you've marked that you can help in one of these ways, we'll send you an email and say, hey, you've said you're interested in helping with car maintenance. Here's this need. Are you able to help? So this will help us not flood you with a million emails, but just the ones that you know that you are specifically skilled in um, or, you know, and just to keep you all updated on the needs that are going on in here. So, yeah. And um, at the door, you'll see Lori. I know Laura is here. Jeremy Jones, Joel Van Klompenberg are all uh, just kind of on this team. If you have questions, just give them uh, a shout. Honestly, we're going for it. We're going for it. This is the 9010 we're talking about. This is our street corner we're talking about. This is us pushing it down and out that we're talking about it. And I'm going to say this, the most significant thing Crossroads will do this week, or as significant as any other thing, is whoever signs up and gets up on that roof. It's every bit as as significant as as what I'm going to do right now, what people do up here in terms of worship. This is the body of Christ being the body of Christ. Yeah. All right, let's step into Philippians. 
We're stepping into quite a text today. In fact, I was thinking about it. If the Bible, if you saw the Bible as a mountain range, this is probably one of its greatest peaks. I think this is maybe one of the most complete pictures of Jesus in terms of who he was and what he did. And so if you came this morning just kind of looking for a little devotional thought and, and just maybe a little nugget uh, to walk away with, um, it's not happening this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at one of the greatest theological treatises in the Bible concerning Christ. We're going to mine this thing for all it's worth. And so I'm just going to ask you right now, if your brain is just like turned off to do whatever you need to do, turn it on. All right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Philippians 2. If you have a Bible like mine, I know I'm back in the NIV. This is found on page 831. Derek, of course, uh, looked at the first five verses last week. So I'm going to start with verse 5. Your attitude... Your mind, the way you think, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or hung on to or kept, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And those are going to be the verses we're going to look at, but I still want to read the following. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the reading of God's word. You can be seated. All right, verses uh, 1 through 11 are a chunk. And I want to start by drawing your attention to three words that kind of form the backdrop of this whole text. And I don't think we'd see them if I didn't highlight them. These are the words, if you have a pen or something and you don't mind circling your Bible, I'd like you to circle these words. First of all, in verse 1, circle the word spirit. And a little bit later, actually before that, circle the word Christ. So you have Christ and spirit circled. Now I'll go to verse 11 and circle the word Father. Now, what's the significance of these three words? That's our definition of God. God is a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And see, I think we just gloss over this. I don't even think this enters our mind when we talk about God, when we explain God, let alone when we pray to God or, or worship God. He's a trinity. And for us to think rightly about God and even to think rightly about Christ, we have to see this this morning. Our understanding of God begins with this idea, God is a trinity. Now, I get uncomfortable sometimes with this notion of trinity because I can't figure it out. Okay, now I'm going to have to try to explain it. And, and I think you guys get uncomfortable with it because you can't figure it out. But listen to me. Why do we have to figure it out? We're talking about God. Why do our puny, finite minds have to have the infinite God all figured out? He's a mystery. There's a mysterious element to God, and I thank God for that. But ways I try to think about this, God as Trinity, is this. Um, God is not one-dimensional. He's three-dimensional. And each dimension is so uniquely and utterly perfect 
that it becomes its own person. And then the relationship of each dimension to the other is so utterly perfect, so perfect is the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we can say three persons, yet one God. And that's why you see this right at the beginning of the Bible. God says, let us, let us make man in our own image. Not let me make me, but let us. In fact, the word there for God is the word Elohim. El is the singular form of God. Elohim is the plural form of God. I love talking to Jews about this. They don't know what to do with it. See, God is already at the beginning a plurality. He's not singular. He's plural. Then consider this. Think about how God created the world. How did he create us? How did he create the universe? He spoke it. Well, to speak, what do you need? You need a speaker. You need words. And you need breath. The Father is the speaker. The Son is the words. And the Spirit is the breath. And you see this throughout the Bible. You see, you see also this. You see the Father who purposes it. You see the Son who executes it. And you see the Spirit who applies it. You see this in God creating the world. And you see this in God's recreation of the world. The Gospel. And the reason I want to start here is because believing God to be Trinity, I think, has huge implications. And the biggest, in my opinion, is this, that God within himself is a community. So think about this. I mean, this is an awesome thought if you're awake enough to even think about this. But that throughout eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been pouring oceans of love into each other, delighting in each other, selflessly sharing and giving of themselves to each other, bringing glory and praise to one another. When's the last time you just felt like a million bucks because of what someone said to you or did for you? And you just walked away just kind of almost feeling exalted and full. See, that's what's been going on in the Trinity throughout all time. The Father exalts the Son. The Son exalts the Father. The Son exalts the Spirit. The Spirit exalts the Son. In fact, that word koinonia, which we have called fellowship, uh, the, the, the fellowship of the gospel, the fellowship of the ring, it starts right here. And there is no fellowship of the ring here. There's no fellowship of the gospel here until we are in him through the fellowship of the spirit. But when we're in that fellowship, it translates into a koinonia here. As I mentioned earlier. And so within God is this community. It's characterized by perfect love, by perfect unity, by perfect oneness. But see, it's more than a community. The Trinity is family. <laughs> family. And see, I grew up, and the theology that I was given about God had so many philosophical concepts. Plato, Aristotle. And, and, and what happened is that God, to me, became some abstraction. This impersonal force. That's not God. He's Father. In fact, you know what the Bible says in Galatians uh, 3 or 4? And also Romans 8 says that the first things our soul does when we come to know him, and I mean know him, do you know? Abba, Papa, Daddy. You know, I've mentioned this before. I love how C.S. Lewis speaks of the Trinity. He speaks of God as the great dance, the dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, 
that this dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is this. Listen, oh, it's the dance of divine harmony, beauty, symmetry, unity, creativity, and power all exploding in divine ecstasy and joy. And he says, you know why God made the world? For one reason. To invite you and I into the dance. In fact, if you don't see God this way, as the great dance, as Trinity, I'll tell you what you're left with. You're left with a God who never loved anybody before he created the world. Think about it. If God is not a Trinity, then prior to making the world, he never had relationship. But see, what the Trinity means is this, is that God has always had the most satisfying love, the most satisfying relationship right within himself, a relationship and a union that's so intense that we can say three persons, yet one God, and therefore God did not make the world, as some would say, because he's lonely, because he needs love. And I'll even take this further. God didn't make the world because he's some egotist with this huge glory need. While the whole world gives him glory. All creation declares his glory. He didn't make it because he's a megalomaniac. He made the world for one reason. To give. That is just at the heart of God to give. It's what's going on in the Trinity. Father giving to Son. Son giving to Spirit. Spirit giving to Son. Son giving to the Father. They give praise. They give glory. They give exaltation. And God said, you know what? Let's share it. And so, I mean, I mean, Lewis says this. He says, all pleasures that we have known on earth. Think about that. Have you, have you known any pleasures since you've been alive? Anyone? Okay, all pleasures we have known on earth are but only hints of the movements of that dance. And he says the dance becomes even greater than any pleasure you and I have ever known. In fact, I was thinking about this this week kind of came to me what's the first thing God does after he creates the world after he creates Adam and Eve and inviting them into the into the dance walks with God in the cool of the day tell you what he does is he gives them a flesh on flesh union marriage oneness sex Because within the context of the covenant of marriage, this flesh-on-flesh union is just a small taste, and it mirrors the union for which you and I have been made. Union with God. Communion with Trinity. See, I think it's from this backdrop and from this context that we have a better understanding to get to the full meaning of what this text teaches us about Christ. Because verse 6 starts this way. Who, being in the very nature God. The word nature there in Greek is morphe. It's significant. Because this isn't some Shirley MacLaine claim that I'm God or New Age movement that says we are all gods. Morphe means very essence. So, What the text is saying is that Christ is in the very essence God. See, now when you put that in the context of the Trinity, of course Christ is God. So Christ didn't just become God in the New Testament. Christ always was God and forever will be God. Do you know that? John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Always was, always will be. 
Verse 3, listen to this. And through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. He's awesome. And this is more than just a statement that through him, the whole universe is made. But even more than that, he's uncreated. This is all over. Hebrews 1. Colossians 1. I don't have time for Colossians 1. Read that one today. But Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Through him, he made the universe. Listen, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being sustaining all things as the word by the word. Do you know this about Jesus? I'll tell you what, it affects the way we worship. It affects the way we pray. It affects the way we live. Jesus was and is eternally God. And I know there are some of you that are just thinking to yourself, come on, Rod, what's the big deal about this? What I believe about Jesus isn't really that important. What's important is that I live like Jesus. And I just say, if, if, if that's you, you couldn't be more wrong. It absolutely matters what you and I believe about Jesus in terms of who he was and what he did and how desperately lost we'd be if we didn't have him. And see, we're living in a time And I don't want to just highlight the young people right now, but I feel like I can do this. We are living in a time when people, especially young people, are wimping out on doctrine. And they think all you need is love. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus never would have been crucified for saying all you need is love. And as good as the Sermon on the Mount is, he wasn't crucified for the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't crucified for how he lived or telling people how they should live. Even that flew into people's faces. He was crucified for one reason. He said, I'm God. And they killed him for it. And, you know, some of you I know are saying, okay, show me, show me the verses where Jesus comes right out and says those words, I am God. I'm telling you, he said it all the time. But here's the deal. He said it like a Jew to a Jewish audience. He said it in a way that a Middle Easterner thinks. He said it in pictures. And why do you think they're always picking up stones and wanting to kill them? Um, sir, your sins are forgiven. Do you realize what Jesus just said? They did. What? Only God has the authority to forgive sins. It's all over the New Testament. Before Abraham was, ego a me, I am. What did he say? He just took the name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. They want to pick up stones. I'll tell you what's interesting. Of all the people, and this is really interesting, to me at least, of all the people to make the claim that a, that a human being could be God, the Jews were the very last. Greeks, Romans, Persians, Egyptians, they already believe their kings, their pharaohs, their Caesars to be divine. But for the Jews, the idea that a man could be God, it was anathema to them. In fact, their whole worldview 
was centered upon monotheism. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohehu, Adonai Akkad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And they pray that prayer over and over and over again throughout the day. And so to them, God is the transcendent creator. He's infinitely transcendent above all creation. They were the last people in the world to believe a human being could be God. Even today, the number one reason why the Jews reject Jesus is because he claims to be God. And yet think about this. Here's Jesus, born a Jew. His first followers are all Jews. First thousand believers are Jews. Imagine the quality of Jesus' life. Imagine the godlikeness that just oozed from him. I mean, imagine all the scrutiny this guy would constantly face. Imagine the miraculous power he must have had. Imagine just his personal presence when he walked into a room. Imagine what kind of person Jesus must have been for people in his Jewish world, thousands upon thousands, to come to the point where they said, that man's God. And for you and I to sit here 2,000 years later and to say what I believe about Jesus doesn't matter, and all that matters is that I live like Jesus, this couldn't be further from the truth. We need to know who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how desperately we need him. Now these verses flush that out. In verses 6 through 11, scholars look at this, especially in the Greek you can see it, but I can also see it right here in the NIV. It, it, it looks different even on the pages Its structure and form is different. And because of this, most scholars think that this is either a formal confession or one of the earliest songs about Jesus that was literally sung about Jesus or confessed about Jesus just years after Jesus ascended to heaven. So no one can really say, wow, they just kind of projected this back into the story that Jesus said he was God. Jesus said he was God, and his first followers had songs like this and confessions like this and went to the stake and died for things like this. Do you know what you believe about Jesus? Do you know what you believe and why you believe what you believe and the significance of why you believe the what about what you believe? Sorry. (laughs) But verse 6, look at it. It says, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That word grasped there is, 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 is hung on to or kept. I can almost uh, hear the conversation going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit says, you know, it's time to get them back. The Son says, yes, I miss them. Father says, yes, they need to come home to be in us as we are in each other. So Father says, I'll purpose it. Son says, I'll execute it. Holy Spirit says, I'll apply it. Now what's it going to involve? Well, says the Father to the Son, you're going to have to leave. Father, you mean leave all, all this glory? You mean leave all the blessing and privileges of our communion where we have no need of anything? Yes, says the Father, you must leave. Well, what is it that I will do? You will go to a time-space planet. You will take on Adam's flesh. You will go down there and become a single cell. You're going to pass through a womb. You're going to become a child. Oh, really? And then what will I do? You will live the life that they were supposed to live and you're going to die the death they deserve to die. And the text says, and he did not consider equality with God something to be kept. But he made himself nothing. Nothing. In fact, that word in Greek is kenosis. It means to empty. He, he emptied himself. And scholars ask, well, what is it that the second person of the Trinity emptied himself of? And I want us to hear this morning, he never emptied himself of being God. 
He never stopped being God. But what Jesus emptied himself of was his glory of God. In fact, I love how the King James Version puts this. It says, he became of no reputation. He emptied himself of all privilege, of all status of being God. He emptied himself of that place where millions upon millions of angels, every moment of every time, peace, worshipped him. He gave up the life-giving, all-satisfying place of the side of his father, the bosom. And he made himself nothing. And what this making himself nothing is all about, it's not just humility, it's humiliation. And the text expands on what this humiliation entailed. Reading backwards, starting with verse 8, it says he was found in the appearance as a man. Meaning this, there's nothing special about Jesus in terms of his appearance. I mean, if you and I saw Jesus in the streets, we would say, there's a man. We would not have said, oh, he's more than a man. We would see him eat his lunch. We would see him get tired and exhausted. We would see him probably even pick his nose, maybe rub sleep out of his eyes. Just a man. I think people would travel long miles just to see him. And you know what I think they'd say when they showed up? Which one's Jesus? But I'll tell you, had you and I been out there one night on the shores of Galilee and looked into that storm-tossed boat and the wind and the waves and hearing Peter frantically crying out, we're going to die, Lord, save us. You would have seen someone who, though found in the appearance as a man, Stand up and say, just cut it out. And you would have saw the winds and the waves die into utter calm. And I think being completely amazed like the disciples, you would have concluded with them, what manner of man is this? See, and this is what Paul is saying He's found in the appearance of a man because he was a man. He's 100% man all the while remaining holy God. Next clause, working up, it says, he was made in human likeness. I like how John puts it a little bit more poetically. The word, the second person of the Trinity became flesh. What do we see at creation? We see God's hands in the mud. (laughs) Now at the new creation or the recreation, it's more than God just having his hands in the mud. It's God taking on the mud. He enters into our mess. He takes on our flesh. He takes on Adam's nature. And what you need to understand is, is this is more than just Christ being earth, but it's the, the community of the Trinity in flesh. And blow by blow, this Christ is living it out in the flesh. He's bringing, I and my Father are one in the fellowship of the Spirit. And it's in flesh because God is about more than saving souls. He wants to bring this thing all the way down to our level. Or he could redeem our flesh as well as our soul. See, it doesn't even stop here. Taking the very nature. There's that word morphe again. The essence of a servant. See, the Most High not only became a human, he became the lowliest of humans. The absolute greatest became the smallest. The Sovereign Son, the second person in the Trinity, became the lowliest of slaves. We are just flat out wrong to not meditate on this. (laughs) 
in God. I had a rabbi tell me in Israel, in Jesus' day, no one washed feet. Not even slaves. That was way too low of a thing to even ask of a slave. <laughs> Yet here's Jesus picking up the ball, washing feet. Even Peter is like, Lord, you can't do this. You can't stoop that low. Not this low. This is humiliating. You know, but in becoming a slave, the one through whom the world was made became nothing. He gave up all his rights, his rights to glory, his rights to his own personal happiness, his, his right to live as he wanted, as he pleased. Why? Because he became obedient. Not to death. Not like death was over him. He became obedient unto death because he was obedient to the Father. And yet death is where obedience to the Father leads. It's where Christ's humiliation ultimately brings him. Even death on a cross. And I think most of us already know this, this morning that Romans killed people this way, not just because it was incredibly torturous and painful, but they did it because they utterly wanted to humiliate the victim. So let's find the most public place. Let's lift him high. Let's strip him naked. Let's pin him helpless for the world to watch. Even death on a cross. Do you, he, do you see, does your heart see the way of Christ, which is the way of our God? See, what this text is giving us actually is a window into the mind of Christ. We actually get to see how Christ thinks. But you know what the punch is? Not just like, wow, that's amazing. But the punch then is, Paul isn't just giving us information. He's giving us exhortation. And it's a staggering exhortation in light of what we've just taken in. Your attitude your mind, the way you think, should be the same as that of Christ. So can I just cut through the chase right now? You know, in a room this size, some of you right now are thinking of leaving your spouse. And may I ask on what basis? I mean, what is the standard that gives you the right to do this to your family? Well, it's time for me to do something for me and to live my own life. It's time for me to finally be happy. Do you hear yourself? And some of you right now are wondering if you should take your spouse back. You're thinking, well, I deserve a lot better than this. On what basis do you deserve better? Some of you right now feel like you're losing everything that you worked hard for and you're bitter and you're angry and you're just thinking to yourself, you know what, I worked hard for this. I deserve all of this. Really? Some of you right now are thinking of ways in which you can take revenge on people who have hurt you. I ask you, on what basis? Some of you right now are living recklessly and selfishly. You're doing anything and everything under the sun just so you can be happy and comfortable. Oh, I deserve to be happy. 
On what basis? I mean, on what basis can we be proud? On what basis can, can, can we promote ourselves and exalt ourselves and live for ourselves? I'm going to end with this. Why did Jesus do this? Why did the community of the Trinity, why did they not just give up? Let's start over. I'll tell you why not. I think it's for two reasons. Number one, Adam's race is hopelessly, hopelessly lost. And second of all, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they love us. And they desperately want us back. And see, I think one of the things that maybe in my tradition that we've done a little bit of an error is we've made the gospel all about forgiveness and justification, that that God deals with my guilt and he, he He cleans me up. And while this is a huge part of what God is doing for us in Jesus, the gospel is so much more. It's about God reconciling us and adopting us. Not only are you and I sinners, we are orphans who are helpless and estranged from our daddy. And we're cut off from the community of the Trinity for which we are all made. And here's the gospel. Jesus left his father. Jesus went to a faraway country. Jesus took on Adam's flesh. He became a prodigal, not a rebellious one, a righteous prodigal, a righteous son to seek and to save rebellious prodigals like you and I. And can you say right now, he found me. (laughs) I'm back home. I can. I can say in my rebellion, in my hopelessly lost state, Christ came to me and he said to me through his word, I'm your brother and I'm bringing you back. It's time to go home. Jesus, I'm not worthy. I know you're not, but I've made you worthy. I've lived the life you were supposed to live. I died the death you were supposed to die. See, that's the gospel. The gospel is that we have an eternal daddy who doesn't give up on us, but he comes to us through his son and he rescues us and he adopts us and reconciles us to be sons and daughters. It's awesome. I hope you know this. And I'm going to end with this. I, I, I love this little detail that John includes in his gospel. They're, they're sitting at the Passover meal. And John just decides to put in there, and there was I. I was just resting, reclining at the bosom of Jesus. You know, John's probably the youngest disciple. I, I put him in, 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 in his early teens. And I just think, you know what, John, in, in all the stuff that's going around him and, and the things that they're about to face, can you imagine what it must have been to just have your head Resting on the lap of Jesus. It must have felt so secure and so good. I don't know about you, but I don't let anyone just put their head on my lap. (laughs) My wife and my kids. That's it. But do you know that we are made to recline? And to rest our head at the bosom of Jesus like little kids. And see, what John begins his gospel with is this. Jesus left the bosom of the Father so that you and I could have it. He became nothing so that we could have everything. He became poor so we could have the riches of God. He became a slave, the lowest of slaves, so we could become sons and daughters. 
Have you been found? Do you know right now? Do you go through life knowing that you have a brother, a big brother, who just loves you and who's made you worthy, who lived the life you were supposed to live, died the death you deserve to die. He provides the way home. And it's the only way. I am the way. The only way. I am the truth. The only truth. And I am the life. The only life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if Jesus were here today, he'd say one word. Repent. Teshuvah. Return. Come home. Come home. Let's pray. God, in the next few moments, we're going to have the opportunity to take in and to eat and drink the thing that we have just heard, the gospel. And so, God, I just pray right now that we would have you burning in our heart and that there would be hunger and thirst right now. And that there would be repentance in this room because all of life is repentance. And the ways that we've strayed from you, that we come back home to you as we eat and drink your body and your blood.